This is The Guardian. Today, the questions remaining after Sue Gray's heavily edited report. For weeks, whenever Boris Johnson was confronted with allegations of rule-breaking in Downing Street, he repeated a simple mantra. All of that, as you know, is the subject of a, uh, a proper uh, investigation by Sue Gray. Please, can I ask him to wait uh, for the inquiry to conclude? We must wait for the, uh, we must wait for the outcome of the, of the inquiry, and we, I'm afraid he simply, he simply must wait. I do urge her to, to wait, as I've said to the uh, benches of it. The Honourable Gentleman is continuing to ask a series of questions which he knows will be fully addressed uh, by the inquiry. Yesterday, we didn't get Sue Gray's full report, but an update on her investigation. There was no naming of names or details of individual gatherings. Instead, the thin 12-page document highlighted a drinking culture in Downing Street and concluded that there were serious failures of leadership that needed to be addressed immediately. The most pressing allegations, however, Gray reported would have to await the outcome of a police investigation. For a prime minister desperate to move on, it was a stay of political execution. But for how much longer? From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Nikbal. Today in Focus, the Sue Gray inquiry. Where does it leave Boris Johnson? Jessica Elgott, you're The Guardian's chief political correspondent. And as we record, you are in our office in the Houses of Parliament. And after weeks of speculation, we finally have something concrete to discuss from Sue Gray. She's the senior civil servant who's been investigating the allegations of rule breaking in Downing Street during the COVID lockdowns. Now we have it. What does her report say? So Sue Gray's report is in in a way incredibly limited because it, it doesn't name anyone, it doesn't list gruesome details about what went on in all these different parties. Because of this Met Police investigation, it's been severely restricted. But I think that we can discern actually an awful lot from it, a lot more than, you know, on the, fir- on the first reading where, where what strikes you is there are several pages of a 12-page report that say they're, they're left intentionally blank and a long paragraph about what coronavirus is. I think you, what you need to do is to read a lot between the lines. And, and essentially what she says is that, first of all, that the police are investigating at least 12 events And one of them is a party in Boris and Carrie Johnson's flat, one which the Prime Minister has always denied ever took place. And the report is pretty unequivocal about that. It it describes it as an event, not not even as an alleged event. Obviously, it's in a much you know sort of shortened and redacted form, but she she certainly finds that there were serious failings you know in the culture of Downing Street, saying that at least some of the gatherings in question represent a serious failure to observe not just the high standard expected of those working in the heart of government, but also, and I think this is quite crucial to the public perception, but also not up to the standards expected of the entire British population at the time. And it says that there were too little thought given to what was happening across the country, i.e. the hardship that people were suffering in considering, you know, how appropriate these gatherings were and and the risks that they presented to public health and how the public might perceive them. And she describes it as that, as a failure of leadership and judgment by different parts of Number 10 and the Cabinet Office at different times. 
What does it tell us about the culture of Boris Johnson's Downing Street operation? And how bad does it look? Well, I think, you know, if when we first started getting these stories about, you know, Downing Street Christmas parties, if we'd have been told then that the final investigation would find that there were at least 16 of these gatherings on 12 different dates, among which 12 of which were such serious breaches that they've been investigated by the police. I mean, that would be an astonishing revelation, I think, you know, to, to, to how this started, which was, you know, number 10 essentially saying that these were, you know, a couple of people having a, a glass of wine at their desks. There was no party, there was no rule breaking, all the guidance was followed at all times. I mean, now where we've come to, you know, this, the difference between that is so stark. Um, I think, you know, we've seen so many revelations that perhaps the public MPs as well might have become inured to that. But when you put it like that, it sounds pretty shocking, doesn't it? Well, as you said, we know the Metropolitan Police are also investigating the incidents at Downing Street. And it's as a result of that that we haven't got the complete report we were once expecting, but, you know, a somewhat limited version of Gray's findings. Can you tell me what's missing? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a significant amount missing from the report. And the main thing that's missing is that just that there aren't any names. Gray doesn't specifically censure any of the kind of senior Downing Street staff, although she does make references to certain officials or she, where she says that, you know, there was potentially too much expectation placed on them and that their roles had, be, had become too blurred with, 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 with other roles. But, you know, th- th- I, I suppose there's three or four really key questions. It doesn't really answer whether Boris Johnson himself is responsible for any of these events and, and thus um, it doesn't get close to naming, you know, the whether he's one of the people under investigation by the Met Police. But I think if we read between the lines, it makes it almost certain that he is because of two of the events that are being examined, one of them in his private flat and one of them the garden party that he's admitted to attending. Now, both of those have been judged such serious breaches of lockdown that they are amongst those the police are investigating. You know, and, and it also suggests there's no ambiguity about those events taking place. So I think that's one of the questions that it doesn't answer, but also sort of does answer. And, you know, obviously the other thing is that she she identifies that there's been these failures of leadership and judgment, but crucially, she doesn't she doesn't say who. Um, and you know, if you speak to people in the cabinet office, I think that Sue Gray was certainly hoping and expecting to be able to say who made those failures of leadership and judgment, but implicitly can't say that because they're being investigated by the police. The Prime Minister's defence throughout this whole saga has been that however ill-advised these gatherings were or however bad they appear, they didn't break any rules because they were essentially work events. How does that look in light of these findings? And does Sue Gray take a view on that? She doesn't necessarily get into what people's defences were. And I think that's because, obviously... If she details in her report what all of the people have said about the reasons why they were at those events, then the police, you know, the police aren't able to sort of fairly investigate those people. People are, you know, then able to sort of collude or go along with what's in the public domain in order to make their excuses. There are some criticisms in the report, and again, you know, it's pretty limited in what it can say, about this idea that that um, May 2020 Bring Your Own Booze party might have been a work event. She acknowledges that the garden was used for work meetings, but she says that that was always used without any real clear authorisation or oversight. There were never limits to those things, and that wasn't appropriate, and that now it should be an invitation-only and very controlled environment. Was there anything in the report that stood out to you that could cause more problems for Johnson? So one of the things that I think the most obvious one is that there are two events in this report that 
seem to be ones that we, that at least the journalists, haven't unearthed yet. So there's one in a gathering on the 18th of June 2020 um, in the Cabinet Office, which was again a leaving party for a private secretary. And again on the 14th of January 2021, in the depths of that second lockdown, a gathering in number 10 on the departure of another two private secretaries. So it seems like there was a kind of, there was a culture of having these kinds of gatherings to celebrate people's leavings or birthdays or Christmas in a way that it's just became the norm in Downing Street. And I think that's one of the things that Gray is the most critical of as far as she can be in this report, that a culture had developed, um, which, uh, you know, made all of this quite permissible. And you, you have to sort of start, you know, yeah, obviously the questions Tory MPs then start to ask themselves is, you know, who's ultimately responsible for that culture? And they, they may come to the conclusion that, that that's the prime minister. And what did she say about leadership and what Downing Street could do without actually having to wait for the police to conclude their inquiry? There are several things that Sue Gray makes clear, you know, that don't need to wait for um, the Met Police to finish their inquiry. And that, you know, the Met Police is ultimately is the thing that might lead to to the, the discipline or otherwise of various particular members of staff. But she says that there are things that can take place immediately, addressing this drinking culture in number 10, um, addressing gen- the general structures of how of how the office works, um, how those those lines between uh, personal and uh, uh, and professional lives had become blurred, especially around the spaces with number 10 being a residence um, as well as a workplace. And, you know, generally kind of a, a, a culture which I think she, she hints has developed that people saw their work in Downing Street as being somehow separate to what the rest of the population were going through and thus giving them leverage to act differently. Prime Minister, well, I wish a little longer as well at the beginning. I know it comes to the statement. Prime Minister. So yesterday, a few hours after the document was handed over, Johnson made a statement in front of Parliament. Jess, you were there. What was the mood like when he stood up to speak? And first, I want to express my deepest gratitude to Sue Gray. It was a packed chamber when Johnson stood up to speak, and it was quite a bizarre statement because he he started off being very sincere, apologising. But firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right, and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. I'm saying that he accepted the findings of of this update. It's not really really a report. I know what the issue is. Yes, Mr Speaker, yes, yes. It's whether this government can be trusted to deliver. And I say, Mr Speaker, yes, we can be trusted. Yes, we can be trusted to deliver. And then suddenly lurched into the kind of classic Johnson PMQ's shtick, which is, you know, fastest vaccine roller in Europe. We said we would get this country through COVID, and we did. We delivered the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe and the fastest booster programme of any major economy. Boris doesn't really do humble very well, and I think that there's a feeling amongst those advising him that the one time he really tried to do that, which was that interview with Beth Rigby, where he just looked terrible. Loads of Tory MPs thought it was, you know, thought he was on the verge of collapse, and 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 that actually what he needed to do is kind of front it out and show the public that that you know this is this is irrelevant. Um, to, to what the government's actually achieved. I'm not sure how well that's going to get, that's gone down with colleagues. I mean, and there were certainly some very serious interventions by C- senior Tory MPs in response to, to Boris Johnson. What the Grey report does show is that Number 10 Downing Street was not observing the regulations... Including the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. ...members of the public. So either my right honourable friend had not read the rules or didn't understand what they meant and others around him, or they didn't think the rules applied to Number 10. Which was it? 
the former cabinet minister, Andrew Mitchell. I thought he should think very carefully about what was now in the best interests of our country and of the Conservative Party. And I have to tell him he no longer enjoys my support. Both saying, you know, essentially that he'd lost their confidence. Quite a few Tory MPs, supportive Tory MPs, reading things off their phone, making supportive comments. But by and large, there was, you know, especially when, when Johnson lapsed into an unserious response or or riffing on 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 his usual anti-labor attacks where where Tory MPs looked quite grim-faced and I think you know a few have said privately they feel he misjudged the mood I don't know how widespread that view will will be because I think that that will be really crucial to to what happens to Johnson over the next few days We've heard in recent weeks Labour leader Keir Starmer repeatedly call for Boris Johnson to resign how did you respond to Johnson's statement this time? Moments. Many have been overcome by rage, by grief, and even guilt. Guilt that because they stuck to the law, they did not see their parents one last time. I think speaking to Labour people about what, what Stan was trying to in, in, intending to do here, there have been points at which, during their exchanges in PMQs, Starmer's made a lot of jokes at Johnson's expense, you know, trying to, to sort of reduce him to a laughing stock. I think here it was, the intention was to do something slightly different. They should feel pride in themselves and their country because by abiding by those rules, they've saved the lives of people they will probably never meet. To try and rise above that kind of knockabout stuff and, and speak for how people in the country, particularly those who had gone through real hardships in lockdown might be feeling. Our national story about COVID is one of a people that stood up when they were tested. But that will be forever tainted by the behaviour of this Conservative Prime Minister. Trying to find things that resonate with Tory MPs. He quoted Thatcher at one point. Margaret Thatcher once said, the first duty of government is to uphold the law. If it tries to bob and weave and duck around that duty when it's inconvenient, then so will the govern. There was, there was a bit that really particularly struck me where he said that governing should be a, a privilege and not the keys to a court to show off to your friends. It is an act of service to the British people, not the keys to a court to parade to your friends. And, you know, obviously that, that, that raises questions about, you know, how... Who's had access to the flat? It certainly, you know, raises the question of of, of Carrie Johnson's role in in all of this, and and to those who have kind of seen the last few years of kind of governing as a game, giving being able to appoint their friends to various positions and and hold parties, you know, at whim in in these these kind of offices of state. And I think probably a lot of that will resonate with some. Tory MPs who are of a slightly more old-fashioned, you know, Keir Skarmer is very rarely able to get Tory MPs to do anything apart from the opposite of what he wants because every time they start thinking about it and Keir Starmer says something they might be feeling, they tend to then, you know, feel all tribal and, and, and want to oppose it. I think, you know, uh, the, the, they go through a lot of different emotions. But it was an essentially appeal to the Tory party and it'll be interesting to see whether whether any of that works or filters into their thinking. They can heap their reputations, the reputation of their party, the reputation of this country on the bonfire that is his leadership. Yeah. <laughs> or they can spare the country from a prime minister totally unworthy of his responsibilities. Yeah. Coming up, when will we get to see 
the full investigation into the parties at Downing Street. Jess, Sue Gray's responsibility here was to establish the facts and make recommendations, but not decide on Boris Johnson's political future. So what happens now? Well, I think one of the most significant things that has happened is that um, after a barrage of criticism from, from Tory MPs, both within the House of Commons chamber and outside it, and privately as well, Boris Johnson has had to commit to publishing a fuller version of the Sue Gray report. Uh, we went through a kind of backwards and forwards with his spokesman um, in a lobby briefing, which is a briefing for political journalists just after Boris Johnson gave his statement, where they said that he would only consider publishing a fuller version of the report, which we know exists, one that we uh, that Sue Gray was preparing to send to him before the Met investigation uh, was announced. Tory MPs have said, you know, they would reserve judgment until they saw the sort of full transparent facts. That's obviously not... Um, been the case with this report and probably wouldn't be the the, the um, case after an investigation by the Met. They're under no obligation to kind of publish all their evidence or, um, or or to even say the names of the people they've sent fixed penalty notice to. But now Boris Johnson, I think, you know, is, has found himself in such a corner that he has committed to publishing um, that fuller version of the report once the Met's investigation is concluded. And therefore now there is a bit of a holding position that Tory MPs have again. They now have an excuse to defer their decisions again because they can say, OK, we need to wait for the Met's conclusion and wait for the fuller version of this report to publish. Um, you, you know, it's hard to say whether that's to Boris Johnson's advantage or not. He, he gets to tell people to keep waiting, keep waiting for the evidence. But, you know, while while that happens, the public's probably made up their, you know, its mind about what it thinks, you know. Uh, and also, he he's only delaying the inevitable and, and, you know, hoping that it takes the wind out of the sails of the people opposing him. Does this report get us closer to the 54 Tory letters needed to get a vote of no confidence in their leader? I think it certainly does get us closer to the letters. I'd be very surprised if a few letters hadn't hadn't gone in today. And uh, and Andrew Mitchell, the former chief whip who spoke against Boris Johnson in the Commons, saying that he'd lost his support. I mean, he won't confirm it, but it feels as good as you know. It feels like a very heavy hint that that that's what's happened. Whether it get us over the line, I I don't know. A lot of the people we're speaking to are you know saying that it's too early. A lot of the people are entrenching themselves in their you know long held positions. I think one of the things to remember about the the no confidence vote in Theresa May is it happened at quite a random time and she was under a lot of pressure with a lot of resignations but it didn't happen just at the cusp of something a particular event in Brexit and there were so many it was triggered you know just before Christmas when Tory MPs were, were particularly angry for a whole number of reasons so you know whether it's got him out of the woods I don't know I'm not necessarily expecting to see a vote of no confidence in a way that we thought there might be one a couple of weeks ago but you know that's not that's not to rule it out and there could there could be one at any time it feels like Do you think for the Tories deciding whether to back Johnson or not that this whole affair being dragged out for so long means that that initial momentum and that fury has been lost somewhat I think that's almost certainly true that it has. And I think there can always be a sense down here in Westminster that there's a there's a kind of collective madness where people whip each other up and they and, and they, you know, get plot in little groups and they become they convince each other in, in, in smaller groups that, that something must be done and they act and then they find they don't have as much support as they thought they did. I think certainly the wind has gone out of some of the sails of some of the groups that were that that were plotting against Johnson. And I think there's also a very significant faction 
amongst the Tory MPs, you know, some older colleagues, people have always been quite sceptical of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Someone described to me they tend to be kind of middle-aged white men. They're probably not looking at a promotion anytime soon. And they've got their doubts about Johnson and, and they are really the ones who kind of hold his fate in the, in the balance. Whether the, this has been the moment that a lot of those people move, I'm not sure. But I think that we will, you know, start to, to work that out in the coming days. Well, for weeks, Johnson and ministers have told the public and the opposition to wait for this report before making a judgment. But now Johnson seems to be asking his fellow MPs to wait for the police investigation to conclude. What do we know about that investigation? It seems like police have got a huge amount of evidence to trawl through. The Met say that they've been given 300 photos of alleged number 10 parties, um, that they've been given 500 pages. I mean, Sue Gray says she's spoken to 70 people and there are lots of people that she may not have spoken to. She may not have spoken to ex-officials who have left number 10. You know, they don't have to speak to her. They're not employed by anyone and they're under no obligation, although I think she said that she'd like to speak to them and Dominic Cummings, the, the, the Prime Minister's former chief advisor who's now turned into his nemesis, you know, says he's given evidence to, to Sue Gray. But there are plenty of others and the Prime Minister's wife, Carrie Johnson, I mean, she's mentioned as attending several of these gatherings. The party in her flat is is mentioned in the Sue Gray report. You know, will the police want to, to look into her involvement in, in, in these arranging? These are not comfortable things for, for Number 10 to have to confront. Do you have any sense of the timing of how long it will take the Met to complete their inquiries? We are probably looking at weeks for them to do that and, and we're expecting those inquiries at those those interviews to begin in earnest this week. The police have signalled in their statement that they see no reason why publication of the of, of a further version of the Grey Report can't be published once their investigations are concluded. At some point, I suspect there's a there'll be a signal got from them that, that that moment has passed where they feel there's no risk of jeopardy and that can be published. But, you know, this could drag on for many months. Jess, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jessica Elgott. You can follow our reporting from our fantastic Westminster lobby team at theguardian.com. And before we go, I want to mention a brand new podcast from The Guardian called Weekend. Launching on Saturday, it will showcase the best Guardian interviews, features and opinion columns from the week. Listen from this Saturday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Cassin. Sound design was by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mythley Rao. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.